I'm Fran. I'm on staff, been on staff about eight months now, although Craig and I have been here coming to SCUM for about, what, five, six years now, so it's really, it's always a privilege when I get to be here. Um, the last few weeks, the sermons have been tough because we're trying to stretch this out so that we get Jesus out of the grave on Easter as we finish up the book of Mark. So we've had a couple weeks of Jesus's trial. Last week, we had Jesus crucified, and he's been on that cross all week because he's, he's going to die tonight. And that's about as funny as anything's going to get, so you might as well laugh now, and that's it for the next 40 minutes or so, guys. It's a tough, tough topic. Um, Leonore said last week over and over, she kept calling it gnarly, and it is. It's a tough story. My prayer last week was that we would all have occasion to really grasp how terrible and joyful at the same time the crucifixion and death of Jesus was. There's just no way of, you know, telling you a cutesy, funny story to introduce it. So I'm not going to bother trying. We're going to get right into um, the passage tonight, which is out of Mark 15. And I'll tell you, this is, Mark, he's amazing. I'm not a creative person, and Mark is a phenomenal writer. He's very imaginative. He's very creative. And I don't mean he's making it up. I mean, he just, he's going to tell us things in ways where you have to really grasp to get it, not as bluntly as I, I put it because I'm not that creative. What I want to do is read through the passage, and I'm going to explain a lot of the stuff because every freaking verse is just full of meaning. But then I want to go back and concentrate on two things, absolutely unexpected didn't think you were going to hear anything like that. One statement, come, well, a question coming from Jesus himself while he's on the cross, and then a statement coming from the head of the execution squad. Very unexpected, both of them. So we'll read the passage. I'll go through with some highlights, and then I want to concentrate on what those two guys had to say. Up there? Mark 15. Oh, golly, the glasses. <clears throat> okay. Jesus is on the cross. At noon, darkness covered the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those who were standing near heard this, they said, Ooh, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Now let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Will you pray with me for a second? Oh, more than a second. Father, I want us to grasp what has happened, but it's not a happy, clappy story. So please give us grace. Be with us. Help our hearts and our minds comprehend what went on in this scene. Amen. 
Well, like I said, it seems like every verse is just full of something. Very meaningful to Mark's readers, who would have been Jews living back in those times. He starts out by saying, darkness covered the whole land. And he doesn't explain to us whether this was a supernatural darkness, where suddenly the sky went dark, whether there was some kind of a storm or something that darkened the sky, whether or not there was a a sense of gloom and a dark feeling, because it's not really his concern to explain to us how this darkness happened as much as what this darkness meant. And for a Jew reading this, they would know from all their reading of the Old Testament that darkness is a sign of God's judgment. In fact, one of the prophets, the prophet Amos, had written something that, golly, it sounds like it was almost written about the crucifixion. That's what prophecy does sometimes. Amos 8, 9 and 10. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament that can be a second time after having been applied to Israel in their original setting, a second time applied to Jesus. There is no way he could have manufactured the situation of his death to make all these prophecies come true. Act of God, maybe, you think? So darkness, a sign of mourning, a sign of judgment, covers the whole land. And that's even a bit unusual because you think, well, who's going to get judged here? Shouldn't it be the Jews who betrayed him, who trumped up the charges against him? Shouldn't it be the Romans you know, the governing authorities who are carrying out this execution. But Mark wants to be sure we know it is a judgment over the whole of all of God's creation. God is sovereign, present, and able to judge all that he has created. There is no exception to his presence, to his influence, to his ability to have a final say over what goes on. We cannot be like children and say, well, I don't see God. He's not there. God is there. And Mark is making sure we understand in this verse that God has claim over everyone, everything he's created. This is significant. Jesus cries out in Aramaic, sort of the trade language that he was used to speaking, along with Hebrew, maybe along with Greek, maybe along with Latin. Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is feeling the break in the intimate connection that has always kept him and sustained him in times when people treated him like crap. But now this is breaking. And we'll come back to that because it's really significant. You know, does God really abandon and forsake, reject people? But there's, you know, we know from, you know, the rest of the chapter and earlier that this execution was in public. And so there were people who came to see what was going on, as well as soldiers and chief priests and mockers and people who were glad to see the crucifixion. But there's, there's this one group, and I tell you, they are the most annoying little mosquitoes of all, Because they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They think instead of saying, Eloi, Eloi, he said, Eli, Eli, meaning he's calling Elijah. 
Now, the, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, by the time of Jesus' crucifixion, had sort of become a pop theology figure. And people thought that the prophet Elijah would just zap back to earth to rescue an innocent person. So these annoying little folks that are worse than the comic relief characters in any Shakespeare show are just like, oh, 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 he's calling Elijah. Now we're going to see something. Wait, wait, he might die. Don't let him die. We need to keep him alive. And they actually run and they grab a drink that's sort of a stimulant, and they shove it up for him to drink. Now, if somebody is suffocating, you don't want to give them something to drink. That's very insensitive. They can choke on it and die all the quicker. But they're not thinking of anything except maybe the spectacle they're going to get to see. Let's see if Elijah comes now. You know, they misunderstand them. They're insensitive. They're unhelpful. They're voyeurs on the scene. And all they care about is seeing something spectacular. And they are clueless about what is really happening that is spectacular. And enough said about them because they are just annoying. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He died. A loud cry. Now, that's unusual for someone who's suffocating, hanging there. But Jesus was in complete mastery of himself up to the moment of his death. Rather understated. And you think, wait, what, what just happened here? Wait, he just died? That's it? Yeah. Let me put it this, let me um, explain to you how the prophet Isaiah, again, an Old Testament prophet, had spoken words to Israel that are so applicable in this situation to Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 5, then I'll read verse 6. What just happened here? I'll tell you what just happened with Jesus dying. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's what just happened here. The next verse, I shall illustrate even. The way it was illustrated to me back in college at one point. Here is Jesus, free communion with his father at any time as God himself. Here we are. Sin is separating us from Jesus. And Isaiah writes in chapter 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The burden of all of the sin of Humanity laid on Jesus, now who has access to God directly. That's what just happened there. The death of Jesus is not an, a coincidental thing, not just the death of a criminal, not just the death of an innocent man. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement, the initiation of the kingdom he talked about so often, the beginning of the redemption, the reconciliation, salvation, healing, restoration. So many words can describe what we now have as a potential through the death of Jesus. That's what just happened there. And meanwhile, these gawkers have their eyes out for Elijah. And their salvation, should they accept it, has just been accomplished. Now, I said Mark was really creative. He puts it another way. and Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Zoom across town a couple miles, 
because Golgotha was probably on one side of Jerusalem, the temple's on the other side. And we're not talking a little window curtain here that suddenly got torn. I mean, you got to think bigger than any stage curtain you can imagine. And we don't know what curtain in the temple tore. There were two main ones, two main possibilities. If you went into the entire temple precinct, the temple mount, there was a large area that anyone could go in, any Jew, any Gentile, but there was a big curtain that divided that section from the section that only Jews were allowed in. And in the Jewish part of the temple yard, there was a structure called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest, only once a year, was allowed to go in there. So you see a real hierarchical system here. And we don't know whether the curtain that was torn was the one that kept the Jews from direct access to God or even the Gentiles from access to God. But Mark puts this so poetically almost. Jesus died and the temple curtain was torn in two. There's two things going on here. Something's gone, and what's gone is the need for the whole Old Testament slaughter the animal sacrifice system where animals had to be sacrificed for sin time after time, and where once a year the high priest would go in for an atonement. The temple system is no longer needed because the perfect sacrifice has been offered in Jesus. Sin is atoned for, and not just that, but the opposite. What was destroyed and what was created, what is initiated is the kingdom of God is upon us now. Everything that God promises to bring to culmination at the end of the time is started now. Now he has begun and made possible healing, reconciliation, not just for humanity either, but for all of creation. Christ is Lord and victor over all the powers of sin and death, evil, Satan. So Mark puts it, in a very creative way, that the temple curtain was torn into. New system, folks. New opportunities. The centurion who's standing there says, hmm, surely this man was the son of God. And I want to, I will, that's the second main point I want to come back to, but let me just comment on the women who are standing there watching from a distance. And we don't know how distant they were, gospels, four gospels, a little bit of difference in how far you sense the women are standing away and by the way for all you artists out there i tried googling this scene to find some authentic honest representation and there's nothing that gets it right so the field's right for any of you who want to actually portray the scene the way it happened the women are standing at a distance and you know actually this could be a little bit of a could be a little bit of a modesty thing. The men were crucified naked, and that was horrifically shameful for a Jew. I mean, any of us would be embarrassed to be naked, crucified naked in public. So I'm sure the women who had followed him all this way had a little bit of a, a little bit of attention going on. You, know, you don't want to get so close as to add to the humiliation, but you want them to know you're there. And Mark is so careful to name these women. That's a pretty high level of respect and recognition. You know, a lot of times you think, you know, Christianity, bah, puts down women, blah. Well, I'll tell you what, compared to other cultures around, they, they were miles and miles ahead. He names these women as witnesses to the death of Christ, and he will name the women 
who were at the resurrection as witnesses also. And maybe they were a few feet away in the second ring of observers. Maybe they were farther away, but they were there. They were there, consistently, faithfully there. Unlike so many, so many of his followers who just bailed on him and run away. So you've got a theologically significant darkness. You've got theologically screwed up gawkers. Just annoying. You've got the very understated death of Jesus. You've got a very symbolic tearing of a curtain in a temple. And you've got these faithful, quiet women who were there, regardless of the circumstances. They were there. And you have two amazing speeches. They're only one line each. One of them sounds pretty negative, one pretty positive. My God, my God, where is God? And the centurion, the soldier, confessing that Jesus is God. You've got an amazing sense of rejection from one man who should be intimately connected with the Father. And you've got a sense of acceptance by the guy who just crucified Jesus. What the heck is going on here? How upside down can this story get? Jesus was actually quoting Psalm 22.1. What a miracle. And again, the Jews in the audience would have, you know, watching this would have, would have cottoned on to this whole psalm, would have started going through their minds. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, if anybody could have a rejection complex in life, it could have been Jesus. He was run out of his hometown by a crowd that wanted to kill him. His family members came to get him during one of his preaching tours because they thought he was mad and they wanted to bring him home and put him away. His disciples never understood him, it seems. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The Jewish leaders trumped up charges against him. The Roman authorities and Pilate wussed out and agreed to crucify him, even though they thought he was innocent. The whole scene, as we've seen in the last few weeks, there's people mocking and scorning and teasing and crying out and deriding him. And he put up with all of that. But now, now his button has been pushed. Because now he feels that that intimate connection he has had with his father that sustained him through all the crap of life is being broken as he takes on himself the burden and the guilt of sin. And the father in his holiness has to stand back. Now, I don't know about you, how you've ever felt maybe abandoned by God. I know, I, you know, I could list examples in my life from now until the end of the evening. I was 28 when both my parents died a month apart, and I cried for months. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to cry. And I had no idea, no idea where God was in all that. I cried to God 
at God. That was a a bad time. Craig and I went through years of infertility. And at that point in my life, my name for God was Cosmic Joker. Every freaking month, one more joke. Very funny, God. This is all over your scripture about how wonderful it is to have children. Thanks. Thanks for helping me follow you here. And I'm sure that was a lot of sadness turned to anger and being expressed that way. But again, I mean, I was screaming so loud. If God was saying anything back to me, I had no idea. Month after month for a couple of years. And then a third time, really wrestled with where God was. Um, in 2001, I had the opportunity to go to Sierra Leone in West Africa with a NGO nonprofit group. They were just ending their civil war. I mean, basically, we went into a war zone. And if that wasn't bad enough, I'd been asked to take um, an anti-malarial medication called Larium. Yeah, I hear a couple oofs in the audience. Um, The manufacturer's website will tell you one in 10,000 people have a psychotic reaction to this medication. And I've always been an exceptional person like that. (laughs) But I'm not kidding you. I took three pills in January. In May, I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety disorder, paranoia, post-traumatic stress. And those three pills didn't clear my system until the fall. And I was, in a, I was in a mental illness fog. I didn't know reality. I had no memory. Craig can attest to that. I would have no recollection, no short-term memory of things I did. I would stand at work and scream at people that I, were convi- I was convinced were out to get me. I, didn't, I couldn't grasp reality. And in that, I certainly couldn't grasp God. Where the heck was God? I mean, I was on a short-term mission trip for crying out loud. Thanks. Where are you now? But, you know, there's something I have to say in all of that, and in Jesus' crying out to the Father also. I cried to God. I could not deny his existence, although I could not feel a whit of his presence. And Jesus did the same thing. He cried out, to God. Where are you? And God does not mind when we do that. He really doesn't. But I think our tendency, I think sometimes the pain is so intense and the tension between trying to love a supposedly all-powerful, all-loving God and living in the circumstances that we have to endure The tension is so great when you can't change the circumstances and you can't stand the emotion, the only thing left is to change the beliefs. And so we reject God. And we don't want to admit we're rejecting God because we hurt so bad because someone's going to ask us about that. So it's very tempting to come up with great rationalization and explanation of why our beliefs have changed or disappeared, or evaporated. And that is, it's understandable, because the pain is so bad, and the tension is unbearable. God, where are you? If you were here, how the heck could this have happened? 
And the thing is, I don't want to sound trite about this, but that's what the death of Jesus is all about. He is here, and he has done something about it. God suffers with us. He hurts with us when we hurt. This fallen world we live in is not his intention. It is not, the world is not the way God wants it to be. And he hurts with us, and he doesn't mind when we scream out how discontent we are about the crappy way this world is. But we cannot pretend he's not there. Because just as darkness covered the whole earth, because he has a claim on all of his creation, he continues to have a claim on every one of us. And the death of Jesus offers us the one thing this world can't, and that is hope. He will make all things right. Maybe not in our lifetime, but he is in control. He is present. He does hear. Now, I understand that I don't understand any individual person's pain here. And you may feel like standing up right now and saying, I'm going to tell you what you might feel like saying. It is very hard to look at an audience of 150 and be sensitive to each individual story in here. And I would not want anyone to leave tonight more hurt than you were when you came in. It would be better if we talked one-on-one later or with another member of staff. I don't want to be glib about this. I'm not trying to slap a Bible verse on your pain. It does hurt. And we do feel at times like God is gone. And it is true that he is not. And the tension can be unbearable. And if that isn't hard enough, let's look at the centurion. This centurion guy, this Roman soldier, centurion, probably had over 100 soldiers. We're talking probably an older, seasoned soldier here. We're talking about someone who has come up through the ranks, who knows discipline, whose allegiance to Rome and to the emperor has been proven. We're talking about the head of the execution squad here. Maybe the man who assigns soldiers their various jobs. You get the robe. You get the whip. You put the cross on him. You, you know, put the nails in. And he didn't have to be there. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, if he's the boss, he didn't have to be there. He could have gone off. I mean, if he had his soldiers well-trained, he could have gone somewhere. And for some reason, even though crucifixions were all in a day's work, You did a few of them every day, like as other folks have said in previous sermons, you know, this was Rome's favorite way of keeping the Jews under their thumb. A couple good crucifixions, and you're going to discourage a lot of crime and insurrection. It's another day's job. And yet something was different about this crucifixion. Something in Jesus himself drew this executioner to stick around to see what was going on. What in the world could that have been? 
Well, Mark only says it was when he saw the way Jesus died. Well, how did Jesus die? He did not succumb. Jesus did not succumb to hysterics. He was not screaming his innocence. He was not affected by those who were mocking him, telling him, hey, come on down if you got any real power. Hey, 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 get off the cross if you think you're really God. He remained in complete mastery of what he accepted to drink and what he did not. His dignity was intact. And I, I would guess that the centurion, as a seasoned soldier, was pretty impressed that Jesus would follow orders from his heavenly father and stay on the cross when really he did have the power to come down had he wanted to. I think that discipline and that willingness to sacrifice was very impressive to a Roman centurion. And he calls Jesus the son of God. Well, in Roman culture, emperors are called sons of God. Nero is a son of God. Tiberius is a son of God. It was a title of respect. Yeah, it implied, oh, emperor, you know, you are, you are divine. You are like a god. There's a little twist in what the centurion said, though. He said, this man was the son of God. And the Jewish culture also used that term. And when they used that term throughout the Old Testament and in the time of Jesus, they meant Messiah, rescuer, deliverer, someone with authority that only God himself could exercise, ergo, son of God, actually God. Wait a minute. What? You're telling me, I'm telling you, that the first person to actually recognize Jesus as God was not the Jewish leaders, not his apostles. It was the freaking guy who just put him on the cross and crucified him. Is that not a little backwards in your thinking? Is that not kind of weird? It's like, oh, geez, I just crucified God. This would have been a really, this could have been a pretty costly thing for this centurion. He just took a title that is supposed to go to the emperor, and he applied it to this scrubby little Jew who's hanging on a cross. They could have called this treason. He could have been dead next. And I think also, seriously, if, what kind of, Son of God, did he think this was? If he, I, I don't know, I think, think, think this one through with me. He just crucified this man, and now he is willing to admit this man is God. When he admits this man is God, is he not admitting that this guy can just <laughs> zap him on the spot? How did the, I would be kind of a, Afraid to con- make that confession of faith if I had just done what this guy had done? And yet it seems like maybe by the grace of God, he had in his mind already a sense that this is a God of forgiveness, 
and grace. How else could you look God in the eye and say, oh, geez, I'm sorry I just crucified you. It's, it's horrifyingly funny, almost. And what about us? With what we've done? Are we, are we willing enough to admit that whatever we've done, forgiveness is on the table and we can have it from God? little story, when, when I was in second year of university, I went overseas to England, and that's where I kind of got interested in this Christian thing. And there was another friend kind of tracking along with me. We were kind of interested together, a guy by the name of Ken. And we would go to different Bible studies, and we'd hang out with Christians, and we went to different events, and we're learning the vocabulary and hearing the story. And you know, we're, we're tracking along here. And around about the end of October, I was like, okay, I... Man, I'm there. Okay, I'm committing to Jesus, you know, Lord and Savior, walk the aisle, whatever you want me to do. Ken was nowhere. He just never made a commitment. He just, he just, you know, we kept going to events, kept going to Bible studies, learned the vocabulary, understood the arguments, learned more and more of Scripture, and he would not make a commitment. It was like late March when he finally said, I can never be a Christian. Like, Why? And he told me some things he had done. And they were pretty awful things. And I am so thankful that by the grace of God, I was able to just look him in the eye and say, God is willing to forgive that. And just that face-to-face contact with someone who didn't freak, who simply spoke those words, God is willing to forgive that was enough to allow him to kind of tumble into the kingdom also and make a commitment to Christ. Because he had never dared dream that he could be forgiven for what he had done. No matter what you've done, no matter how broken your relationships, no matter how screwed up the circumstances, no matter how much you have hurt so many people, Forgiveness is an offer on the table. It is not automatic. And I'm not saying that God is going to make all the consequences go away. But God's offer of forgiveness is on the table. And you don't have to get all hyper-emotional about it. You don't have to grovel. You don't have to be publicly humiliated in some big show or display you could be like the centurion who stands there and says, surely this man is the son of God. God's not after emotion. He's after relationship. He doesn't need to see you put on some display. The offer's there. He needs you to say, I'd like that. And again, I don't know what's in your background. I don't know what you feel is making you unworthy of having an intimate relationship with God. But come on, folks, if the chief executioner could experience the grace of God and the acceptance, really, have you done that bad? Have you crucified God? I told you this was going to be kind of (laughs) heavy. 
But it's significant because what we've got here, we've got Jesus on the one hand, the perfect, innocent person feeling rejected by God. Just as often we feel rejected by God, as hard as we are trying for crying out loud, where is God? And we've got the Roman soldier saying, this is God. And everything Mark has built around this, about God being sovereign over all creation, the curtain tearing in two, all of these signs that God rejects no one. No one. You may feel rejected. God is not rejecting you. You may feel absolutely unworthy. God will not reject you. The offer is there. As we wrap up tonight, um, during the worship set, and as long as we need to, we're going to have prayer in the prayer room back there, that corner. And I've always wanted to explain to people what goes on back there, because it's not hocus-pocus magic. You know, nobody's going to slay you in the spirit or anything if you go back for prayer. And sometimes you hear people say, you know, go pray with somebody. And I want to assure you, if you want to pray, you're welcome to pray. If you, But the, the thing with the folks that go back there to help with prayer, they have two phenomenal gifts. Number one, they know how to listen. And number two, they're not afraid to pray out loud. So tonight especially, I would say if, if you're, and I know I, this is, it's so hard to say because I don't want to hurt anyone more, but if you are so hurting right now, you have no words to speak to God. Let somebody speak the words for you. Or if tonight it would be helpful if someone looked you in the eye and said, that can be forgiven. Let someone do that and lead you and help you go with you into the presence of the God who rejects no one. It's an absolutely upside-down story. The innocent guy is dead, and the most guilty criminal on the scene is alive forevermore, eternally. But that's the upside-down kingdom. And... I would, I would really pray this week that we take advantage, wherever you're coming from, of what you need in your relationship with God because it's there and available.